When it comes to family vacations, there are a million different trips you can take. You can get your own... trip to Texas. Or if you prefer a vacation from your family, you can always get your own leave the kids with grandma trip to Texas. So go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Introducing Celebration Key, your key to paradise. Unlock Carnival's all-new exclusive destination at Grand Bahama, where you can dive into clear lagoons, try all the water sports, or unwind on a mile-long pristine beach with breathtaking sunset views. This vacation paradise has it all. Celebration Key, welcoming guests in summer 2025. Carnival, choose fun. Copyright 2024, Carnival Corporation. All rights reserved. Ships Registry, the Bahamas and Panama. The Bowery Boys, episode 102, The Early Days of Brighton Beach. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young with another solo show this week. Now, I know last week we did Bronx Zoo, a, one of New York's greatest recreational places, but I'm still in this recreational outdoorsy mood. So this week I'm heading down to the Brooklyn neighborhood of Brighton Beach. For most New Yorkers, what immediately springs to mind when you talk about Brighton Beach is its Russian community. In fact, the neighborhood is lovingly referred to even as Little Odessa. It's one of the largest Russian communities outside of Russia, and its bustling center right there at Brighton Beach Avenue features all these amazing food shops, restaurants, lavish entertainment venues, all advertised for you right there in rows of signs in Cyrillic letters. If you want to feel like you're on an international vacation and you only have a few dollars in your pocket, well, you could do worse than take the Q train down there and spend a couple hours enjoying the sights. But Brighton Beach was a very different place for most of its history. Being situated that long next to all of those legendary wacky sights and sound of Coney Island, well, that changes the neighborhood. Both Brighton Beach and nearby Manhattan Beach, to its east, were resort districts of the 19th century, with grand hotels and piers catering to the thousands crowded up north in New York City. Today, I'll take you back to this Brighton Beach, the swanky hotels that sat here. Where did Brighton Beach get its name? And how did it go from a vacation destination to a thriving Russian community? All that and more as we take a trip down to Brighton Beach. generally, and you think of the boardwalk, the amusement parks, Nathan's hot dogs, probably the aquariums, probably some freak shows. But Coney Island is actually the name of the entire landmass that dangles off the south end of Brooklyn here. 
As we mentioned in our Coney Island podcast, which is really one of our very earliest shows, actually. It's been like over two and a half years, I believe. What we mentioned in that is the origin of the Coney Island name is a little bit of a mystery. Although the popular theory is that the Coney part may refer to the Dutch word for rabbit, which is Kunine, which I've learned to say in the past two and a half years. There's no mystery about the island portion of the name, however, because it all really was, at one time, an actual island, separated from the mainland by the Coney Island Creek. Now, part of that creek, by the way, the middle part, was filled in in the 1930s, and so it's no longer an island. There are four major communities on Coney Island. So going from west to east here, you have the quiet gated community of Seagate, which is a residential neighborhood whose defining feature is this lighthouse, which actually sits on the westernmost edge. Next to that, of course, is the famous neighborhood of Coney Island today. Then other the other two neighborhoods I'm going to be speaking about are, of course, the two that are furthest east. The first, Brighton Beach, which shares that famous Coney Island boardwalk, is defined by Brighton Beach Avenue and the ocean on its south and Shore Parkway to its north on the mainland. East of Brighton Beach is the far calmer Manhattan Beach, mostly dominated by single-family homes. Many of them are quite palatial, actually, and many of them look like real houses, like people actually have front yards, and I think I even saw a white picket fence there. The residents of Manhattan Beach also benefit from having the lovely Sheep's Head Bay to its north. Now, this is a small, picturesque little marina with a great pedestrian bridge walkway that takes you over the bay up north into the neighborhood that's also called Sheep's Head Bay. And by the way, this was not a place where sheep got decapitated. Nothing so gruesome. The sheep's head was actually a fish. Now, we'll get to Brighton Beach in a bit. For now, I need to set it up with a brief history of Coney Island itself. A former hunting ground for the Lenape Indians... Coney Island was the southern part of the Dutch village of Gravesend, an absolutely unique settlement in the history of the United States, as it was granted in 1643 by Dutch Governor William Kieft to an Englishwoman, the Lady Deborah Moody, who created one of New Netherland's more open-minded religious communities here. The center of the original village is located in the heart of where the modern neighborhood of Gravesend is today. Now, Lady Moody purchased Coney Island from the native Lenape, and her fellow settlers saw the island as an ideal place to pasture their cattle. Moody, in fact, kept her very own drove of pigs here. Believe it or not, the island remained pretty much uninhabited through most of the British period and well into the beginning of the 19th century. The independent town of Gravesend still held on to Coney Island, and thus it would not become part of the growing metropolis of Brooklyn well until 1894. Essentially then, Coney Island felt like an isolated place. Its natural beauty was totally preserved. So due to its great lengths of natural beach and this, of course, wonderful southern exposure that we all enjoy when we go there, Coney Island became a place to get away to, almost as soon as there was enough people in the city of New York to take advantage of it. The first road, called the Shell Road, and a toll bridge to the island was built in 1824, and soon after, a couple small hotels were here and beckoned day trippers to Coney Island to experience, quote, the tonic of sea bathing. The island was still a short-term destination, however, but the seclusion of these early small hotels attracted the middle class, as well as a few famous city bohemians, like Walt Whitman, and adventurers like P.T. Barnum, who actually brought his famous musical star Ginny Lind here. A pavilion was built in 1844 on the far west side of the island, that's where Seagate is today, and it attracted a less moneyed crowd. 
shall we say, and eventually developed a reputation for crime. By 1874, it had become Norton's Point, named after the disreputable politician Mike Thunderbolt Norton, who ran a rather skeevy dive there for many years, and then soon became a notorious vacation spot famous for housing gangsters and corrupt businessmen. By the 1860s, Coney Island had developed a reputation as New York's recreation destination. It was, of course, nowhere near the levels it would get just a few decades later, and of course, all the action at this point was still mostly on the west side of the island. The east side, the one-day home of Brighton Beach, well, it was still very quiet, uninhabited sand and dunes. That would change with the arrival of streetcar and train lines to the island in the 1860s, and also with the rise of corrupt Graveson politician John McCain, that's M-C-K-A-N-E, who deceived local landowners by selling land to wealthy developers while pocketing kickbacks to himself and his overlords over there in Tammany Hall. It was through McCain's rise that many of these lands became available for, quote, Coney Island-style developments, which typically meant amusements and cheap hotels alongside dance halls and gambling dens and lots of brothels. But two wealthy developers would take the eastern end of Coney Island in a very different direction. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. The first developer was named William Engeman, who had actually made his fortune during the Civil War, selling mules and horses to the Union Army. I guess somebody had to do it. Post-war, he took that money down to Coney Island and eyed that vast, unused cluster of dunes just east of Coney's developed area. Buying up some of that land, he then built the quaint little Ocean Hotel and Pier here in 1871. One of his first wealthy guests to the Ocean Hotel was actually a man named Austin Corbin, who came here ostensibly to care for a sick son, following doctor's orders who said that the sea air would do him good. Well, by chance, Corbin looked at all the remaining land that was actually next to Engeman's and decided to buy all 500 acres of it. Of course, it helped that he got an illicitly cheap price, thanks to one of McCain's typically corrupt schemes. So... Engeman and Corbin became the two main developers of the east side of Coney Island. And you can actually tell the general division of their respective property today because Engeman's land would become Brighton Beach and Corbin's would become Manhattan Beach. 
Corbin just happened to be a railroad mogul and the owner of several new lines of track in Brooklyn and Queens and would eventually own the entire financially troubled Long Island Railroad. He saw buying this property and developing it as part of his scheme for expanding the railroad, essentially creating something that people would want to pay a train fare to come visit and ride all the way to the end. The train line here, the New York and Manhattan Beach Railroad, opened in 1877, and what it offered passengers at this eastern tip of Coney Island were two sumptuous new hotels. The first, the Manhattan Beach Hotel, was opened on July 4, 1877, and had no less than former President Ulysses S. Grant presiding over the whole event. The fairy tale style resort, with its gracious artificial lawns and a huge boardwalk, held 258 rooms, most of which were quickly snatched up by New York elites looking for a closer alternative to places like Newport, Rhode Island. Three years later, Corbin built a second hotel here called the Oriental, appealing to the same audience, but in a fanciful building with Moorish details, balconies for days, and 400 rooms. Meanwhile, not to be outdone, Ingman looked at his tiny little ocean hotel and decided that it just wouldn't do. A year after Corbin's Manhattan Beach Resort, Ingeman opened the Brighton Beach Hotel in 1878. Ingeman cleverly brought a revered public figure into the decision to name the hotel, and thus the whole area. Henry Cruz Murphy had been the former mayor of Brooklyn, a former presidential candidate, and the founder of what would become the Brooklyn Historical Society. He was also on board of the Brooklyn Flatbush and Coney Island Railroad, the train that would later evolve, of course, to become the B and the Q trains, at least in this area which was also, coincidentally, part owner of Ingeman's new hotel. So Murphy got the privilege of coming up with the name Brighton Beach, named for the British seashore destination all the rage with those wealthy continentals. That name would catch on so quickly that the area of amusements and rides to the west would be referred to as West Brighton, and sometimes still is referred to as West Brighton today. That proximity wasn't of benefit to Ingeman, however. His hotel catered to more middle-class, upper-middle-class, as the truly wealthy would never, ever abide being so close to people attracted to freak shows and carnivals, i.e. the fun stuff. So by the year 1880, this entire area was dominated by these three large resorts, all with connections to railroads and their own depots. These hotels all had long piers extending into the ocean and shared a wide boardwalk filled with women in parasols, proper families on holiday, perhaps walking to the bathing pavilions, or sometimes to the hundreds of smaller bathing houses that would be placed everywhere to accommodate the busy season. All these people racing to the beach, fueled by the recent popularity of saltwater bathing. Or you can step in Side to try some of the exotic menu items at the hotel's mini restaurants. The well-connected men, of course, wouldn't do this kind of stuff. They would sit inside and they would convene and discuss what rich men discuss over cigars and various club rooms and that were located in all three of these hotels. At night, each of these places competed for audiences with band concerts and immense firework displays and dioramas featuring dozens of actors and acrobats and once even had an exploding volcano. In fact, John Philip Sousa frequently performed on the lawn of the Manhattan Beach Resort for guests and even wrote the Manhattan Beach Hotel March in 1893. Sounds like a blast, right? 
Well, there's some cynicism lurking underneath the surface here, at least over at the Manhattan Beach Hotel. For old Corbin, he denied admission to anyone who was Jewish. He openly claimed he'd rather go bankrupt than, quote, have a single Israelite, unquote, ever reside in his resort. Well, I hope he's rolling in his grave then, as the present neighborhoods of Brighton and Manhattan beaches have large Jewish populations. So take that, Austin. Meanwhile, over at Brighton Beach, Ingeman was actually making more money from horses, this time by racing them. He opened a horse racing course right next to his hotel in 1879, and while you might think that would drive some hotel guests away, in fact, the course only made the resort more popular, especially as gambling on horse racing at this time was still legal. It even spawned other racetracks nearby, including one just north in Sheepshead Bay. But not all was alright with Engeman either. Over the course of a decade, the beach in front of the hotel had slowly eroded the sand, so that by the mid-1880s, sea waves were literally splashing against the entryway of the hotel. His solution was quite ambitious, I'd have to say. In 1888, Engeman hired workers to slowly lift the entire hotel, 6,000 tons, lift it off the ground and onto 120 rail cars and then moved the entire hotel over the course of three months, very, very slowly, 500 feet back from the encroaching water. The job was so well done, it's reported, not a single window of the hotel was broken. Now, the golden age of Coney Island, of the classic theme parks of Dreamland and Luna Park, and this record attendance of millions and millions of people, well, that came during the 1900s. Things radically changed after those years, however, and that change crept over to these finer resorts. In 1910, the state made gambling illegal, effectively shorting out a major source of entertainment. With the Coney Island Amusement District solidifying as a more middle and lower class destination, well, the rich, of course, soon shipped out of these hotels into more distant resorts. The Manhattan Beach Hotel and the Oriental Hotel were both closed by the mid-1910s, and the land was immediately sold off for residential purposes. Now, recreation at Brighton Beach lasted a while longer and would be joined by the amusement field of Brighton Beach Park. There would also be music halls, and even the Brighton Beach Baths would open, which was a sort of a gymnasium social club that opened in 1909, which offered everything from a steam room to mini golf to you could even get nightly performances here by vaudevillians like Milton Berle. Brighton Beach could never match the popularity of its neighbors to the west, and the amusements that sprung up here during the first part of the 20th century, well, they gave way to single-home bungalows, almost all of whom were built over the old hotel and the old racetrack. And in the 19th 30s and 40s, the neighborhood became filled with these five to six story structure apartment buildings. And those are the type of buildings that still populate the area today, filling with middle class families, mostly immigrants coming to the United States after World War II. In fact, the events of Neil Simon's play, Brighton Beach Memoirs, are actually set here in this place in 1937 in one of these newly built apartment complexes called the Brighton Beach Gardens. The neighborhood overall fell into decline for much of the mid-century, but then something half a world away would change its fate forever. With relaxed immigration policies in the Soviet Union, a lot of Russian Jews immigrated to the United States, and many of them made their home here in Brighton Beach. The numbers would increase even more greatly in the early 90s, of course, with the fall of the Soviet Union. 
and with them came some of the greatest displays of Russian culture that have ever been found in New York City. By reinventing the neighborhood, though, most traces of the past have been obliterated, but you can find little traces here or there if you try. For instance, those famous Brighton Beach baths, well, they were demolished in the 1990s and were replaced with these massive Oceana condominium complex, which actually faces the boardwalk, so you really can't miss it. That's where the baths were at. The Oriental Hotel is memorialized in the name of Manhattan Beach's main thoroughfare, Oriental Avenue. And if you walk over and take a stroll on the beach of Manhattan Beach Park, which is an actual beach where you can still enjoy the, quote, tonics of sunbathing, you'll actually be standing where Corbin's original Oriental Hotel once stood. So that's a little flash of Brooklyn's past, a history of Brighton Beach, and a little bit of Manhattan Beach there. And a reminder, of course, that you need to go out and hit Coney Island this summer. There's apparently a new Luna Park that's opening later this month. I'll be interested in seeing what they're doing with that. As for some of the places that I talked about, I will have photographs and postcards of them on the blog BoweryBoysPodcast.com. If you haven't done so already, please join us on Facebook. Just type in the name Bowery Boys and become a fan, or I guess it's you press like now. Um, so press like. Tom will be back in two weeks. We have another juicy show in store for you. Really looking forward to jumping into that one. So thanks very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours.